Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys, Section 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys, A Midsummer Ramble in the Dolomites, by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 1. Monte Generoso de Venice, Section 2. We were the only English on board, as we had been the only English in the streets, in the hotel, and apparently in all the town of Como. Our fellow passengers were of the bourgeois class, stout matrons with fat brown hands cased in netted mittens and loaded with rings, elderly pères de famille in straw hats, black-eyed young women in gay shawls and fawn-colored kid boots, and a sprinkling of priests. It had probably been market-day in Como, for the foredeck was crowded with chattering country folk, chiefly bronzed women in wooden clogs, some few of whom wore in their plaited hair that fan-shaped headdress of silver pins, which, though chiefly characteristics of the Canton Tessin, just over the neighboring Swiss border, yet is worn all about the neighborhood of the lakes. So the boat steamed out of the little port and along the glassy lake, landing many passengers at every stage and the fat matrons drank iced chiavana beer, and the priests talked together in a little knot, and made merry among themselves. There were three of them, one rubicund, jovial, and somewhat threadbare, another very bent and toothless and humble, and desperately shabby, while the third, in shining broadcloth and a black satin waistcoat, carried himself like a gentleman and a man of the world, was liberal with the contents of his silver snuff-box, and had only to open his lips to evoke obsequious laughter. We landed the two first at small waterside hamlets by the way, and the last went ashore at Cadenabia in a smart boat with two rowers. Wooded hills, vineyards, villages, terraced gardens, gleaming villas bowered in orange groves glided past meanwhile, a swift and beautiful panorama. The little voyage was soon over, and the sun was still high when we reached Bellagio, a haven of delicious rest, if only for a few hours. Next morning, however, by a quarter past seven, we were again on board and making, too slowly, for Lecco, where we arrived just in time to hear the parting whistle of the 9.25 train. Now, as there were only two departures a day from this place, and the next train would not start for seven hours, arriving in Venice close upon eleven at night, our case looked serious. We drove, however, to a hotel, apparently the best, and here the landlady, a bright, energetic body, proposed that we should take a carriage across the country to Bergamo, and there catch up the 1113 express from Milan. Here was the carriage standing ready in the courtyard. Here were the horses ready in the stables. Here was her nephew ready to drive us, the lightest carriage, the best horses, the steadiest whip in Lecco. Never was there so brisk a landlady. She allowed us no time for deliberation. She helped to put the horses in with her own hands, and she packed us off as eagerly as if the prosperity of her hotel depended on getting rid of her customers as quickly as possible. So away we went, counting the kilometers against the time all the way, and triumphantly rattling up to Bergamo station just twenty minutes before the express was due. Then came that well-known route, so full of beauty, so rich in old romance, that the mere names of the stations along the line make Bradshaw read like a page of poetry. Brescia, Verona, Vincenza, Padua, Venice. 
For the traveller who has gone over all this ground at his leisure, and is familiar with each place of interest as it flits by, I know no greater enjoyment than to pass them thus in rapid review, taking the journey straight through from Milan to Venice on a brilliant summer's day. What a series of impressions! What a chain of memories! What a long, bright vision of ancient cities with forked battlements, white convents perched on cypress-planted hills, rock-built citadels, and crumbling medieval towns, bright rivers and olive woods and vineyards without end, and beyond all these a background of blue mountains ever varying in outline, ever changing in hue, as the clouds sail over them and the train flies on. By five o'clock we were in Venice. I had not thought, when I turned southwards last autumn, that I should find myself threading its familiar waterways so soon again. I could hardly believe that here was the Grand Canal, and yonder the Rialto, and that those white domes now coming into sight were the domes of Santa Maria da Salute. It all seemed like a dream. And yet somehow it was less like a dream than a changed reality. It was Venice, but not quite the old Venice. It was a gayer, fuller, noisier Venice, a Venice empty of English and American tourists, full to overflowing of Italians in every variety of summer finery, crowded with artists of all nations sketching in boats, or surrounded by gaping crowds in shady corners and porticos, a Venice whose flashing waters were now cloven by thousands of light skiffs with smart striped awnings of many colors, but once the hearse-like tufted gondola, so full of mystery and poetry, had altogether vanished a Venice whose every side-canal swarmed with little boys learning to dive, and with swimmers of all ages, where dozens of cheap steamers, compared with which the Hungerford penny-boats would seem like floating palaces, were hurrying to and fro every quarter of an hour between the Riva del Chivone and the bathing-places on the Lido, a Venice in which every other house in every piazza had suddenly become a café, in which brass bands were playing and caramels were being hawked, and ice drinks were continually being consumed from seven in the morning till any number of hours after midnight. A Venice, in short, which was sunning itself in the brief gaiety and prosperity of the bathing season, when all Italy north of the Tiber, and a large percentage of strangers from Vienna, St. Petersburg, and the shores of the Baltic, throng hither to breathe the soft sea-breezes off the Adriatic. We stayed three days at Daniele's, including Sunday, and mindful that we were this time bound for a district where roads were few, villages far between, and inns scantily provided with the commonest necessities, we took care to lay in a good store of portable provision for the journey. Our Saturday and Monday were therefore spent chiefly in the mazes of the Merceria. Here we bought two convenient wicker baskets, and wherewithal to stock them, tea, sugar, redding biscuits in tins, chocolate in tablets, Leidwig's Ramori extract, two bottles of cognac, four of marsala, pepper, salt, arrowroot, a large metal flask of spirits of wine, and an etna. Thus armed, we could at all events rely in case of need upon our own resources, and of milk, eggs, and bread we thought we might make certain everywhere. Time proved, however, that in the indulgence of even this modest hope we overestimated the fatness of the land, for it repeatedly happened that, the cows being gone to upper pastures, we could get no milk, and on one memorable occasion, in a hamlet containing at least three or four hundred souls, that we could get no bread. 
There was yet another point upon which we were severely exercised, and that was the question of side-saddles. Mr. R. on Monte Generoso had advised us to purchase them and take them with us, doubting whether we should find any between Cortina and Botzen. Another friend, however, had positively assured us of the existence of one at Capriel, and where there was one we hoped there might be two more. Anyhow, we were unwilling to add the bulk and burden of three side-saddles to our luggage, so we decided to go on and take our chance. I suspect, however, that we had no alternative, and that one might as well look for skates in Calcutta as for saddlery in Venice. As the event proved, we did ultimately succeed in capturing two side-saddles, the only two in the whole district, and in forcibly keeping them throughout the journey, but this was a triumph of audacity never to be repeated. Another time we should undoubtedly provide ourselves with side-saddles either at Padua or Vincenza on the one side, or at Botzen on the other. By Monday evening, the 1st of July, our preparations were completed, our provision baskets packed, our sections of sketching and writing materials duly laid in, and all was at length in readiness for an early start next morning. End of section 2